Welcome to the realm of magic and mystery, classic horror and sci-fi. You are now entering the House of the Unusual podcast with your hosts, Eddie and Joe. Welcome everyone to House of the Unusual podcast. I'm your host, Joe Pavlansky. With me as always is the maestro of mail order mysteries and owner of House of the Unusual, Eddie Guevara. Today's special guest is the returning Michael Mesmer, CHT. Michael, how's it going? Doing great. I'm so excited with everything opening up in our country again and things happening again. So it's re- I'm really doing great. Uh, I'm doing a lot of shows out here in the L.A. area and uh, just having a great time and excited about the new Scary Monsters hitting the stands. Awesome, awesome. Now, you've been on this, this podcast once before, so for people that might not have caught you on there, let our audience know a little bit about yourself and what you do out there. Well, I'm a clinical hypnotherapist, and I am hypnotherapist for the Unger Medical Group here in uh, L.A. area, uh, so I help a lot of people that way. I also hold a degree in psychology. Uh, I also uh, am a world-class magician. I've toured to 25 countries, won many awards, even performed for Michael Jackson and people like that. Uh, I also am a uh, writer for Scary Monsters magazine. So I do a lot of different things. My hands are in a lot of different you know, pies, but I have a lot of fun and uh, enjoy what I do. Awesome. Well, well, welcome back. And uh, speaking of Scary Monsters, I just read your article today. I was, I was saving it so it's fresh in my mind. And I definitely like to dig into that a little bit with you. But before we do that, Eddie, what's new over at the uh, House of the Unusual? We've been having some uh, technical difficulties tonight. <laughs> I know it's. I think we're cursed with. Uh, I, I have a feeling that maybe Chuck was walking by the cemetery. Yes. Somebody angry at us, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's the only thing I could see here. All these technical difficulties, like we always have. But any. <laughs> anyway, I've. I've um, I'm getting together and finishing up a, a line of products with Chuck and we're finishing up about four or five tricks right now, which should go live soon on house of the unusual uh, YouTube channel. And other than that, I also finished reading today, Michael, uh, Michael's uh, article in uh, scary monsters. It was very fascinating. Uh, so I'm looking forward to talking about it. That's for sure. Awesome. And uh, if anyone out there hasn't visited the site lately, check it out. Eddie's completely revamped it. And there's a, it looks fantastic. There's a huge pair of uh, hypnotic eyes staring at you to, uh, to keep you on the site. There's a lot of good videos on there uh, from the YouTube channel. If you haven't gone to the YouTube channel lately, check out House of the Unusual. Type it in your search. Uh, some great videos out there. So um, let's see what's new on my end. Well, I got this week. There was a. Um, I found the link on Universal Monster Army's uh, forum site. It was for a new fanzine on the Gill Man. So I ended up purchasing it off of eBay. It was five dollars. There was only a, a hundred of them coming out, and uh, I received it. It was it's it's really cool. It really draws back to the old fanzines of the the seventies and eighties, and it's it's about digest size. Comes in at forty eight pages has a lot of different writers and it's all about the creature from the black lagoon it is a it's a very cool piece um right before we went on i I checked on ebay to see if there was any more on there and the guy hasn't uh he hasn't put any up yet for sale but uh i'm gonna try to maybe put the um his contact information he has an email on the website 
if anybody's interested out there, they could get a hold of him and see if there's any more that he has less left because I believe he's only doing a hundred of them before moving on to issue number two, which I'm going to hopefully have a little article uh, in issue number two. Oh, so that, wow. So wow. That, you, you really went ahead with the thing here. Yeah. So that, that was my big week and um, my, my, my fanzine. So, but yeah, let's, let's get into, well, Tell you what, Joe, let me let me start this out because I was really amazed with the article. Now, the last time we spoke here with Mr. Famous Mesmer here, <laughs> we, we, we had <laughs> talked about it and coincidentally he told us he had wrote an upcoming article in the Scary Monsters magazine. Now, one thing I wanted to tell you about Mike is um, that I found fascinating about your article is two things. One, when I was a kid, Hollywood Boulevard to me would have been 42nd Street in New York City. Right. And I was taken there very young. And I, you could say I kind of experienced my first magic shops right on that boulevard. Because the fact is, is that I did read comic books and I saw the novelty items in comic books. But when you went to 42nd Street, they had one particular magic shop in the center of town there. And I used to go there to buy my my first uh, novelties. In fact, one of my very first novelties that I bought there was the electric shocking pen. Oh, wow. At the time was 1895, which was a lot of money in early 1970s. I'm right. surprised my parents bought it for me. <laughs> was that a Tannins magic shop? No, 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 not Tannins. The, the name of the man, Tannins was on 26, I think, or 34th Street. No, the shop was called Funky something. I don't remember, oh. but the first part of it was Funky. F-U-N-K-Y, and it was a magic shop, and they used to sell, like, cigarette products and stuff like that. But um, it was located basically right across the street from the Times Square Plaza 1, which is where they, you know, break the ball every year in New Year's Eve. Mm -hmm. When the ball comes down, it was right across the street. And it was there, gosh, who knows how many years. I remember when I was married, it was still there. So it was was there for years. But here's another thing that was interesting. Now, you explained in your article that what basically drew you to magic is when your parents took you to that a parade on Hollywood Boulevard. And you talk about that famous Wheeler's magic shop that was there and how you, you know, you went inside. And before Don Poe's mask came out, you actually saw some masks there that were I forget the name of the person you mentioned that had created them and how they would go for eight dollars and ninety five cents. And now your parents yeah. bought you a dollar ninety five magic trick. Well. The thing is, we kind of have the same similar background. And what I thought I'd bring up um, to your plate is something, I don't know if you ever realized it, but when you spoke about the very first film, how they started doing magic in film and used to use magic. And I guess, that what's, how do you pronounce the name of the Frenchman? George Maillet. Okay, George Maillet. When he did that on screen where his wife turns into a skeleton. Yeah. Okay, that same trick, they use Aurora models. Aurora or Monogram used to have a thing called the Vampire Strange Change. And it was sold in Famous Monsters back in the 70s. And what it is, it's a coffin and you have a key. And of course, it's a model kit. You put it together, glue it together, and it has Dracula inside or a vampire. And then when you turn the key and open the coffin, there's a skeleton. It uses the exact same technique which I see now they probably copied it off that film. Wow. <laughs> I just thought it was very interesting when I was reading that. 
That and, is interesting. That's very interesting. I have yeah, to, it, I'm a big Aurora fan of the Aurora models. Uh, I built several of them when I was young. Uh, and uh, I didn't. I was not aware of that. That is so cool. Yeah, it's called the Vampire Strange Change. And they also had, I think, another one that was a mummy or something like that. But it's called Vampire Strange Change. Wow. We remade it recently. A uh, company, I don't know if it was... Um, uh, oh gosh, what's the name of the new company that puts out Polar Lights? Yeah, one of them redid it recently, and I also rebought it. The original Aurora that I had, I think it was Aurora. You know, right now I don't remember the exact name. Maybe Joe, you got a computer that you could probably look it up and tell me. Um, but the mine I sold it on eBay for like three hundred and fifty dollars years ago. Jeez, it was glow in the dark, you know. But that's what I'm saying. It was it was fascinating when I read that. I'm like, my God, that's where they got that idea from. And then also I found it very interesting when you said about uh, Solvi at the end in the mummy's hand when he did oh, the yeah. rock. Well, it, it's kind of interesting because about a year or so ago, I started putting together a magic trick, which is based on the stones of uh, the Arizona desert, what they call Death Valley moving stones. And mm -hmm. it reminded me of that particular trick because I was getting a rock to move across the surface. And <laughs> that's, Oh, I wow. I really enjoy your article, man. It was great. Well, you know, thank you. I Yeah, that's cool that, that you relate to it that way. That is so cool. Yeah, that, that's... Now, uh, for every, anyone that doesn't know, real quick, the article that we're referencing is in Scary Monsters uh, 121. It's the spring edition. It is the monstrously memorable mummy movies issue. If you haven't got your copy yet, uh, go ahead and... Your your local bookstore should have it, or you could go to um, go online. You could find it anywhere online. And the uh, Michael's article of monsters and magic. It's part one of. Is there going to be two parts, Michael? I take it. Yeah, two parts. It's five, about five thousand words each 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 section. And yeah, they're available at Books a Million, Barnes and Noble, and probably most of your comic book diamond dealers have it as well. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's um uh the scary monsters website, which you can get directly from the publisher, which is my movie all one word. But there was one thing on here, Michael, that really, really struck me is actually your first, uh, your first paragraph of the article. And I want to read that real, real quick and then, and then discuss it because it, okay. it really made, it really made me think, I mean, the whole article was, was fantastic. And, and I learned a lot from it, but it was really the first paragraph and uh, I'll read it real quick. It says, growing up as a monster kid, I have always loved both monsters and theatrical magic. Not surprisingly, many of my fellow monster kid friends also had and continue to have a deep interest in both. In many ways, the two subjects are forever intertwined. Now, I, I love that because I always say that there's, there's certain things that are just that us monster kids that we, we gravitate, you know, For toward. Sure. You know, if you if you love classic monster movies and sci-fi movies, you know you, you're you're probably going to be a fan of mail order novelties, yes, of, of magic, of the Three Stooges, of yeah. the Little Rascals, of you know fifties, you know surf music, which is is, is yeah popular today. But there's all you're always going to have you know comic books. There's always these things that I, I I've been finding that if you're a monster kid. They always, you know, there's these certain subjects that always, you know, go with it. And, and they, do. they do. Yeah. And that really made me 
made me think about it. Now, I, I, when I grew up, the only, the only magic that I really knew about was, you know, whenever David Copperfield came on our, our TV, cause we had an old, you know, Zenith with three channels. And if we were, oh, lucky, yeah. we got four channels, but you know, I always waited, you know, for that David Copperfield, you know, special to come on because that was our, my, the only thing I knew about magic, unless I went to a, a birthday party and some clown showed up that was doing, right. you know, magic, but, you know, I, I I I I distinctly remember being at my my grandmother's house always and, and catching it on TV, and we would sit there and watch. You know, the the hour or two, however long he played, and just being fascinated by it, and you know, getting my own you know little kit and trying to yeah. magic, which I never had the patience for, but I always like to try. But you know, as I grew older and then getting to know Eddie, especially, I, I started getting more into magic, not performing it myself because you know I, I i just can't but i really like the history of it and learning about it and you know how it all started so your article really put a new you know a new level onto you know especially like movies i never knew that um magicians and all that had that big of a part in the you know the early days of movie magic yeah that's true and most people don't you know and and uh, the deal is that really magicians are, were the, as I say, George Maillet was the very first magician who did all the trick, ma- the magic trick movies, the trick movies. And that was to demonstrate what he could do that he couldn't do on stage, that he wanted to take it to a different level. And so all of, a lot of things are based on, uh, you know, the special effects we have now, of course, it's jumped to CGI. But up until CGI, most everything was based on a lot of what he created. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was that was really interesting to learn. Then that, I mean, I, I would have never, you know, it, now it almost seems like you know, duh, yeah, of course, magicians would have been involved with movie magic, but that never really, you know, struck me before and, until I read your article here and you started getting into some of these, you know, classic movies, um, especially one of my one of my uh, favorites was uh, oh, what the now now the 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 moon one, uh, trip to oh, the yeah. moon. Trip to the moon. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that I mean, that was, you know, one one of my favorite old movies. And you know, you also talk about uh, West of Zanzibar, which I, I've I have yet yet to see that one. It's it's on my list. I'm, I'm I want to find it on DVD, but you know, yeah, that's not, yeah, not they, movie they that they, they do have that available on DVD. They do it on demand, where you have to order it and they make it. But uh, it's very clear, actually. It's a very clear copy. And Lon Chaney, freaking amazing in that film. Uh, and then there's a newer uh, version that was a speaking version of it that was out a few years later. I didn't want to make the article just focus on that one story, so I didn't include it, but it's called Congo. And uh, it's also starring the original star that starred in it on Broadway. And he's in, it's a, uh, it's a speaking, speaking version, and it's equally interesting. So you might want to, I like watching both of them back to back. It's kind of interesting to pair them up. Yeah, that, that's that, it's interesting. So what I'd like to really get into if you don't mind is if you want to give us you know maybe a, a brief or detailed history of how these magicians uh got into you know you know all all these movies and all that and and how it started to you know evolve into what it is today you you well, know something let, let me just bring in something really quick before you sure. start there uh it was kind of interesting too michael and i want to bring this because i think this is kind of funny that when we first get you in our first show it so happens you wrote about mail order stuff, you know? Yeah. 
And now the funniest thing is we were talking about last week where Chuck mentioned that his favorite movie was The Devil Doll. And that's yes. one of the ones you referenced there. Yeah. I just thought that that was funny. You got, I guess not only are you a hypnotist, you're kind of like uh, some type of guy that has ESP or something like that. I mean, <laughs> like, well, go ahead. Go ahead. I didn't mean to. <laughs> go ahead. Well, I, I, you know, I don't know, if, and I don't know if that that devil doll that they reference in the story is the same one as Chuck, because there's two different devil dolls, and um, they both have different plots. But I, I, I'm imagining it was the one. But yeah, there, there's a couple of different devil doll films. So, um, but they're both very fascinating and interesting. But anyway, yeah, uh, as far as magicians getting into the movies, like I say, they literally began the movies as far as special effects, uh, science fiction, horror. Because again, George Maillet, he, he did the first horror film. He did the first acknowledged sci-fi film. So, um, and then as things went on, of course, with the silent film industry, uh, being it was out of LA and Hollywood, uh, well then uh, for a lot of the plots, they needed magic. So they went to local suppliers at that time, Thayer, who was uh, a premier uh, builder of magic. And uh, so he supplied a lot of the props for the Cheney film and it went on from there. So yeah, it's interesting, the intertwining and when I talk about magic in the movies, uh, you know, people need to understand I'm talking about theatrical magic that's actually done live on stage by magicians they took and applied to the films. So uh, it's kind of interesting that way. Uh, a lot of people watch the films and think maybe it's a special effect, some of the things in those films that I outline, but in reality, they're actually doing real stage magic. Yeah, that, that's that's really, you know, interesting. And I never really looked at it at that way. Now, you did reference that some magicians, they were credited to movies and some weren't. Was it, you know, common that magicians were or that they weren't accredited to the movies? And, and why would they not be accredited to them if they weren't? Well, you know, uh, it's it, even to this day, to a great extent, that happens. Um, and uh, I think because um, maybe a lot of times, uh, I don't know, some of the magicians may have not been union or something else. Uh, that could be a possibility. But also, um, you know, that just wasn't a normal thing they would add to the credits of films. Um, and unless sometimes if the magician appeared in the film as an actor and, you know, like for instance, Mission Impossible, Tony Giorgio was the card expert, gambling expert and magician expert that advised them on about seven of their episodes. And normally he would also be uh, an actor on there as well. He was also in The Godfather, Tony Giorgio. But um Anyway, so, so when you were in the film as an actor, um, like in The Mad Magician, there's a, a magician that was the person that taught, you know, Vincent Price what he was doing, but he was also a, a bit part in the movie. So then they would normally think about, yeah, let's include him on the credits as a, you know, as a magic consultant. Right. But sometimes when they would just acquire magic from Thayer or Owen Magic or something like that, and maybe have someone else on the set helping them with it, they wouldn't normally necessarily include them, which is a shame because... The, in some of these films, the magic was an incredibly important part of the film. Right now, another thing that that I was I was wondering too, as I, as I was reading your article, because as we know, is you know, with anything new, you you get pushback from you know that that certain part of the the community. So when these magicians started working for these studios, was there any pushback from the uh, the magic community? Uh, you know, uh, I think they were kind of revered uh, because the magic in these films that I'm talking about and the ones that will be in the next part of the article, they were all, the magic was presented in a way where it wasn't exposed, where it was done uh, just as you would do it on stage. 
um, when magic exposes when there's an issue. But okay. uh, at the time, these magicians such as L.O. Gunn and, and the ones I referenced in the article um, and the builders like, you know, Thayer and all that, they were revered and uh, actually highly respected for being able to uh, be part of the Hollywood scene and interject magic into it. Okay, great. Now, I know you and Eddie could could really elaborate on, on this. And like I said, I, I'm still in my infancy of learning about magic, but I, I, I really enjoy learning all the aspects of it, especially now that I, I know that it played a, a integral role in, you know, classic movies. But what uh, what was the role that Houdini started playing in uh, in movies? And, and I know you, you, you touched a little bit on on the article here and how he he wanted to become you know, a movie star. But, you know, can you, you know, let the audience and, and you know, myself as well know, you know, how did Houdini start in the movies or why did he start in the, you know, want to start in the movies away from stage? Well, you know, um, he was um, at a point in his career. Well, first of all, uh, you know, touring is very uh, grueling, and especially with what Houdini did uh, and what I do with my danger magic. And of course, David Blaine currently, he does incredible physical challenges Houdini did. And so touring, you know, it gets very, very challenging. And the movie business was just beginning at that time uh, with the silent film in industry and everything. And he saw it as an opportunity not only to be a star in a film, but to create his own movie company. So he was looking at it from a business standpoint, I'm sure, at also being seen. And also remember, the movie theaters were starting to kill a lot of the vaudeville and all of the uh, live performing at that time. So he probably saw it as the future and thinking, well, you know, I've got to get involved in this future or I'm going to be, you know, put out, you know, where I'm not going to have the uh, kind of touring ability I had. It happened to Blackstone and all of them at that point because the movies were taking over the old theaters and uh, vaudeville was ending. And so it was a good move on his part. But unfortunately, in Houdini's case, I love watching the films, but they weren't with him. He wasn't a good he couldn't he didn't like to kiss women on screen. He was very loyal to his wife, although books will say that he had affairs, which he probably did. But he was old fashioned in the sense that he felt uncomfortable kissing on the movie screen and things like that. So you had Valentino at that time. And those kind of uh, performers that were Latin lovers, et cetera. And you needed to have that uh, sex symbol type thing. Houdini was basing his off of his skills and seeing things on the film that he usually did live or couldn't even do live, uh, hanging from planes, all these things. And uh, so he thought that he would be more like, um, well, like a Jackie Chan of that era, you know, um, where he did his own stunts and that would be his selling point. But in the end, he needed better scripting and more of a love affair type script to reach the audiences of that era. Now, now Houdini did a couple, uh, couple of uh, movie serials, which I, I'm a huge uh, serial fan. Usually once a week, I, I get together with a buddy of mine. He's in his late seventies, early eighties. And, you know, we, we have coffee and watch some old serials. So I, you know, we don't do, we don't watch too many silent ones. We have watched a few, but you talk about a few Houdini, uh, silent serials which i didn't realize he was in can you speak a little bit on, on those i believe one was the uh the master mystery and the other one was the grim game yeah and there's there's Haldine of the uh secret service and yeah there's several and they're all really actually if you want to see houdini doing his real escapes you know uh they can be um they can be trying on you because the plots on some of them the grim game is the best if you want to start with one all okay. of them for me I love because it shows more escapes uh, so I like that as a magician but I would start with the grim game if you're interested in watching one 
but they are serials and they do plot along to some extent uh, to us that are in modern times here. Uh, you know, of course, we all know one of the greatest serials of that type of all time is Captain Marvel, I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we probably agree on that. Um, and, and, and you know what? And I, I was as I was reading the article, I was thinking of Eddie because he's such a, a huge ro- robot fan. And you mentioned in here the uh, the Master Mystery, which uh, premiered in 1918, has the you know first ever robot. Yes, uh, there's a lot of controversy on that, as I mentioned, because a lot of uh, uh, people like ourselves, some of them feel that it wasn't the first robot because it ends up being a person in the robot costume. But you don't know that to the last part of the very last episode of the serial. And for me as a kid, you know, it was still a robot. I mean, and right. I, didn't, I didn't get to watch the serials till many years later because they weren't available. But um, when I saw the posters and the Houdini books, when I was getting into magic, like, wow. And if you look at that design, they pretty much kept with that design for so many different things, uh, you know, until we got to like, uh, you know, Robbie the Robot and Lost in Space up until that time. Most robots resembled a great, um, to a great extent, the robot from that film, from that serial. All right, absolutely. Yeah. Now, Eddie, what would your, what, what do you think, Eddie? Is that a robot? Consider, would that be considered well, a robot in your eyes? Of course it would, because let's be honest, every single film we grew up in, in sci-fi and everything, always had a person inside. So yes, that would be the first time a robot ever appeared. And one thing I could say is that a lot of people don't realize also that Houdini was the first man when he went down to Australia. Since he tried to do everything, he was the first guy to ever fly a plane in that country. Yes. He his own plane and stuff. And some people don't realize that. But, you know, one thing I'm going to tell you about that robot. A couple of months ago, I decided I wanted to try. Because I noticed back in the 1900s, early 1900s, there was a company in Spain that actually offered the plans on how to put that. It was kind of like a model kit of that robot. Wow. And, yeah, it was put onto a cardboard where you would cut it out and build it. And I I have been trying for, oh my gosh, probably for the last six months trying to obtain a copy of that. Wow, uh, that would be so cool. It would be. I think it would be awesome to, to even actually put it on the website. But the whole thing is even David with uh, all his connections on that uh, has not come across one, you know? Wow. It would be very, very interesting. But I have come across one but I'm going to probably need an artist to redraw it so that we have, uh, you know, it, the images are hundred percent there, but to make it so that it's easier to actually put together. But yeah. That, that's, Eddie, what is your favorite robot? I'm curious. I mean, I have all the robot film and all that. My favorite robot of all time has got to be down to earth, the Lost in Space B9 robot, because that's the one that everybody I would can think our age probably grew up watching. as it's a true. Robot where it helped Will Robinson. The Robbie the Robot, even though it has sometimes more popularity, and so does Gort from The Day the Earth Stood Still. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of people forget, see, Gort was not really technically was a robot, but it was more like a statue. The only thing cool about Gort was the one eye that he had a laser coming from. Uh, Robbie the Robot, when he appeared in, in, you know, in the Lost in Space episode called The Robot Toy, um, I was afraid of it growing up, you know, as a little kid that he scared me there. So yes. I, I wasn't a big fan. I mean, I wasn't a big fan of that particular robot. Later on, I'm like, it might even look cooler than the Lost in Space robot. But, you know, in all honesty, I think anybody who grew up in our age will probably say the world's most famous robot is obviously the B9, which is the Lost in Space robot. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, every robot that I've ever liked 
built or tried to even do looks kind of like the Houdini one. Yeah, that's true. That, you that, know, I'll tell you, Eddie, uh, in regard to Gort, um, I was performing in China on a on an elite cruise ship back in the 80s. And actually the wife of the man who designed Gort, and she also worked with him on the design of him and all, she was on the ship as a passenger. And um, actually um, she gave me her silver uh, glass for when my child was born to do his baptism out of and uh, or, you know, for when he was born. And um, and she also helped me with my artwork because I like to draw comics as well. And so that's something I haven't really exploited fully yet. But but anyway, she helped me with my artwork, gave me an art pad. But she was responsible for helping design Gort. That's that's interesting. Um, I know there was one particular guy. I, I forget his name, but he uh, he purchased the original Robbie the Robot in out of some pizzeria in, in California and he restored it. Later, he was offered by a Japanese company. I think it was over 100000 for it, which he didn't obviously take. But I know he started uh, reproducing. They call him the Robot Man. And he makes versions of the Robbie, the Gort, and the Lost in Space. And the Robbies go for about 24000 The Lost in Space go for about twenty-two, And Gort, I think, does about 12500 I know in either case, uh, the wife uh, threatened to throw me out of the house if I ever did purchase <laughs> one. You know, so there's I'm, a, a Robbie the Robot facsimile in the... Um, nuclear bomb museum in Las Vegas. Oh Is wow! The, yeah, they he greets you when you come in, going into the museum. That's awesome. I actually went to a chiller theater last year, and they had uh, two B nines, life size B nines. Oh wow! And, and I took photos with them and everything. And I just, I stood there and I was like, damn! And I feel like just grabbing this and taking it home. Did They're you ever pretty... buy? Did you ever buy the Zeroids? Remember the Zeroids, the little toy robots? Yeah, you know what? Yes, I do. I think I have some. I love you, them. Yeah, they're, they're really cool. But I don't know if you remember. I wasn't. I don't know why they didn't attract me that much. But there was one called Dingaling. Do you remember <laughs> that set in the I early seventies? It it was kind of like a roller coaster, and the robots would go, and there was King Ding and whatever, and they they walked through this battery operated. I had like two or three of them, but I don't know what it is. I never pursued them. Um, Today they're rare. They go on eBay for a couple of hundred dollars whenever they come in. But yeah, Zoidon, the one you're talking about, I was, again, I really, really grew up with the one robot in mind all my life was Robbie the robot. But what about what about the robot in Fireball XL5? Um, he was cool because he was all clear kind of. He's really neat. I always I liked him. Of course. I like the uh, marionation, Mary, you know, whatever process they did. I love that series. The, you know what? To me, when it comes to being like favorite robots, like I said, B nine, the Lost in Space. Yeah. Said, oh yeah. Because I go said Robbie by accident, but B nine was always number one. But the only I, robot that I respect as a robot that I really like is actually made out of Japan in the in you know during World War Two in the nineteen forties. Oh. He's called the Smoking Spaceman. If you're familiar with that particular one, it's a silver robot. It, it looks it, it looks like what a robot should be like. Um, hmm. I also want one story I mentioned. One of the shows I previously had is there was a shiny time station when my 34 year old daughter was, I think, very young. They had shiny time station. Yeah. On 13. Uh -huh. And Schemer, the guy who played the maintenance yeah. guy for the station, one day out of a comic book, he orders a life size robot. 
And the robot was supposed to do his bidding. You know, he was going to let the robot clean the shop, do everything, but whatever. The robot went crazy and started giving away free rides and money. So he sold the robot. But when I saw the costume, I found myself getting a hold of the company up in Canada that they made the... Oh, wow. The, and the robot, and I spoke to the actual creator of the robot, and I was like, are you guys going to use that prop? Can I buy it? So what he instead did is he offered me for, I think it was uh, $1,500. He was going to make me a copy of it. And I'm yeah. like, no, I want the original. But apparently that's where it ended right there. But um, again, uh, the closest thing, and I'm sure, I don't know if you ever seen this film, Santa Claus and the Spaceman. Or, oh, yeah, of course. What is it called? Are, are you talking about Santa Claus and the Martians? Or? Yeah, Santa Claus, the Martians. Uh, in, With Pia Zadora? Santa Claus. That yeah. particular robot there, again, is the type of robot that I like when it looks okay. like that. That's why the seven-foot robot plans that I wanted as a kid and I still don't have resembles a robot very close to one of that shape. And that's why it's it's always been like, I don't like the robots that are out there today, especially the Japanese one. The most people like, um, oh gosh, what are the names of those robots? They're so famous. Uh, do you know, Joe? It's probably when you were younger, uh, all the famous Japanese robots. They look like Shogun Warriors. Oh, yeah, like Gazinga and all of those. Yeah, I don't. Um, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I, I have a couple of those. I don't like them. I have, I have the one, and I have an original which is selling for like two thousand bucks right now. That he turns into a truck. He's oh a yeah. Tru- what uh, uh, what is it called? Um, Are you talking about Optimus Prime? Yes, I have an Optimus Prime in the box. Oh, Transformers. Transformers. I, you know what? I don't like it. <laughs> I bought it because my son-in-law liked it, and you know what? I'm gonna get it, and I, I don't know. I pay like two hundred for it, whatever. Yeah. But I don't care for that particular t- style of robot. I really. You know what I, I'm the same way. I, I I grew up, you know, watching Transformers, but I never got into it. I I've always liked the old robots from the serials. Now I used yes. to watch, right? You know, there used to be a cartoon, and it's you can still find it now online. But in the '80s was Muppet Babies by Jim Henson. Yeah. And Jim Jim Henson was a huge fan of serial cliffhangers, so you could see a lot of times. In his movies, you know, he would add stuff in there, you know, from, uh, you know, different different movies or different shows, you know, mo- a lot of them classic, yeah. but, but he put a lot of serial cliffhanger stuff in there. So I always I always more gravitated towards those ro- robots, which, you know, the one from Santa Claus Conquers the Martian, you know, he resembles kind of a, a, a serial cliffhanger robot. But uh, one of my favorites was always from uh, Zombies of the Stratosphere. Oh, yeah. yeah. Man, the robot in there, I just, I, I just, it's such a simple robot. You could tell it's a, a person inside, but, you know, I, I just love the, those style of robots for some reason. They're just, they're very simple. They're generic looking, and, you know. <laughs> I think the reason you love them too when you were a kid is because you could envision yourself building one and, or getting in one for Halloween or being able to make something similar. And so it was really cool because you could maybe be a robot. We know that's that's what we used to do. We used to get a box and put it on, yeah. spray paint it silver, and then get the um, the Pringles cans, and you would take off the yeah. label, and it would be silver, and that would be your arms. And so you would, you know, go yeah. outside and play robot, but and you look like those old serial robots. Yeah. You, you, you know, you know, Joe. Every time I hear you say that, I swear I kind of want to laugh because those Pringle boxes are or cans are pretty thin. So you must have been a very skinny kid. Well, yeah, I'm talking, you know, when I'm, I'm five, six years old, you know, that oh was, my God. yeah, 
Yeah, you know, not not yesterday when I was a kid. Well, you <laughs> so, know, you know what? I'm going to tell you guys something really quick, Mike. Yeah. Uh, when um, back in the 1950s, Boys Life magazine, which is obviously the leading Cub Scout magazine since for over a hundred and some years, yeah. had a couple of build your own robot <laughs> articles in it. Ooh. And, yeah, because of those articles, they actually repeated the same article a couple of times, like three or four times, and that became the hottest selling magazine that month. And kids love building the projects with robots. So we did grow up, like you said, it was something you can build um, as a kid. Who didn't want to have his own laser pistol? Yeah, you know, oh, absolutely. And <laughs> right. And then Johnson Smith would offer you how to build your own laser pistol plans. I mean, hey, in fact, one of the things that we had um, in one of the recent episodes, where we had this, uh, um, uh, I think it was, um, what was the name of, uh, oh my gosh, I can't believe I, I just forgot one of our guests. Uh, he was the guy who did lightsabers. And um, it's not good to forget names. I guess we're getting older, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, Osborne, Michael Osborne, I think it was. Is, is that correct, the name, uh, Joe? Sounds about right, yeah. Okay. <laughs> he, uh, if he he's listening, a... he, could, he, could, he could let yeah, you know. You, you know hey, send all your hate mail to Eddie. <laughs> Right. Yeah, send all your hate mail because I forgot your name. But <laughs> but the thing is, William, it's William Osborne, I believe. And what happened, he was one of the guys that worked with a guy named Bob Iannini, who owns Amazing One or that famous. It's a, it's a mail order uh, company that sold all the electronic futuristic stuff from laser guns to any plan. And you would find wow. that all the time in popular science throughout the 70s and 80s. And, you know, it's it's fascinating because he sold everything that we as a kid growing up wanted to build. Well, you know, you know, it's funny as you talk about laser pistols and it just reminded me of what, you know, again, what I used to do as, as a child, you know, five, six years old, because I, I was always I liked working with my hands and, you know, creating stuff is I is I used to get the um, the toilet paper rolls. Oh, yeah. Or the paper towel rolls. And I, I would you know, color them up and tape them together. And I would make those into my laser pistols. And, you know, I, I would run around the yard fighting, you know, aliens that were invading my, my area. But, you know, that was, you know, the early laser pistols for me. <laughs> I think back know, Joe, the, how, how funny it is. <laughs> you know, Joe, the thing is that uh, our generation, well, I'm older than you, I'm sure, but our generations, ge- generations, we'll say, we did all those things. And for me, like I would make everything out of tin foil as well. I wanted to yeah, be yeah. I covered my whole body in tin foil and made a surfboard out of foil. You know, this this is good. this is something we're gonna I'm worried for the future really because kids now literally don't have to have a creative process anymore. They right. have their phone or their computer and that's it. There's no creative process, no doing hands-on, there's no making something out of nothing. Uh, and and making it reality and and you know I, I think a lot of the great inventors and great things that happen in our country happen because all of us grew up like that or on a farm having to use whatever we had there to make an imaginary world and um, so I'm a little concerned about the future because this uh, what we're discussing which is was such a wonderful time in some ways doesn't literally exist anymore yeah you know it, it really doesn't I know we've talked about it several times on this podcast about you know, with these, these generations now, there is that creative process is lost because now everything's at their fingertips. But, you know, when I, I, you know, and I'm a lot younger than you guys, but when I grew up in the eighties, 
you know, we didn't have much money and we didn't have access to to many things. You know, if you needed something, you had to go out and try to find it. There was no internet or anything. So when I wanted, you know, to play Spaceman or something outside, I would wrap my head in tinfoil and that would be my space helmet and I'd have my paper towel, you know, laser pistol and... You know, that's what we did. And then at the end of the day, you took it off and you started over with something the next day. I I, I could remember I was, a, you know, a huge G.I. Joe fan. I loved. Oh, yeah. Loved everything military and all that. So I, I could remember, you know, getting a box and spending the whole night. I put on, you know, a war movie, which I believe it was born on the 4th of July, if you guys remember that movie. Yeah. Yeah. And I had this box and I, I used crayons and I colored it camouflage. I put straps on it and I made my own <laughs> my own radio. It was like a backpack radio that I used the next day, you know, running around the, the neighborhood, you know, like I was on a military radio. And, you know, today, sadly, you know, a lot of young kids, they, they'll go out and just buy something or they'll not even want to go through that creative process. And, and no. it's, and you know, it's kind of sad. Uh, you know, that's what led to a lot of the great people that created the space programs and everything else, because they had that process in their head. They could think beyond what they could see in front of their face. Right. But that's the thing. Well, of course, we've seen this in Star Trek and many other things where they have a story where someone can't make the jump to the next place because they don't have they don't have that imagination. They have all the tools and the knowledge, but it takes that imagination to make the next jump to be able to go to the next place, you know? Yeah, you know, and, and, you know, speaking of the imagination, you know, I, I I notice it, and I'm sure you guys do too, is you go to stores and you see these young kids shopping with their parents and they're just, they're on their phones the whole time. Yeah. You know, when I remember being at the stores, you know, going to Hills Department Stores or Ames, going there with my parents, I, you know, I, I hated shopping with them, you know, unless we were in the toy aisle, of course. Right, right. But I, I had to use my imagination and I just, you know, I just kind of, you know, went to a different world and and was thinking up of, you know, army scenarios or, you know, (laughs) alien battle scenarios in my head to pass the time because we'd be at the store for an hour or so. And I'm just walking around bored, you know, waiting to get to the toy aisle. So I would use my imagination. Right. You know, and and today that's kind of lost because they're just, you know, on their phones playing games or, or watching movies, which, you know, isn't inherently bad because the world's geared towards technology. But you know, as you guys know, if you go too far to one side, you know, you're going to lose a part of something else. You know, there has to be a, you know, a happy medium in there somewhere. Well, and you wonder, Joe and, and Eddie, you wonder if there was a neutron bomb that happened and all the technology stopped overnight, what would these people be able to do? How could they survive? Yeah. But yeah. I, gonna, I think it almost might be for the best. <laughs> yeah, it might be. I was going to say, Joe, you said you like Jim Henson then. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I meant- I met Jim Henson one time. I oh, was, really? Yeah, strangely enough, it was in Singapore. I was uh, actually performing on a cruise ship over in Asia, and they were in dry dock, so I spent the week in Singapore. And um, there was a film festival going on. In fact, I, I, was in, I went to see the premiere before it was even released of uh, Star Trek, um, you know, the one, the one with the whales, okay? Um, so I went to see Star Trek, uh, the premiere of it, and they had people there that were producers talking about it. Well, Jim Henson was at that film thing, too. And when I came out of the movie, I was going through, like, this mall area, and here comes Jim Henson walking with Kermit in his arms. And uh, That's awesome. Yeah, and so I walked up and said, Mr. Henson, of course, we didn't have 
we didn't have our cell phones right there was no cameras but i met him i said i love your work i've loved the muppets since you know on ed sullivan and everything and then he had kermit talk to me and he was so awesome so i actually had a personal meeting with jim henson and kermit in the middle of a mall in singapore that yeah that's awesome you know because i i grew up you know on, on muppet babies and fraggle rock in the 80s and um a buddy of mine a few years ago turned me on to a uh, a christmas special that he did called emmett otter's jug band christmas from 77 I, i'm sure you you guys have seen that yeah i mean I know, that... I was telling you, you were talking about muppet babies uh when the union striked out here they had to find people to fill the roles and i was just almost gonna be Fozzie Bear and the Muppet Babies. Oh, really? Oh my gosh! Yeah, Fozzie Bear. Oh, that's awesome! You have to do the rest of the podcast in that voice now. I mean, <laughs> you know, you know I, th- I thought you were gonna ask Mr. Hansen how much you want for Kermit. <laughs> right, you would. I know you would, Eddie. Yeah. I probably. But I but probably yeah, would. so so yeah, I was almost I was almost Fozzie Bear. In fact, I went in the studio. We were cutting it, and then the unit thing settled, and they went back to who they had, but. Uh, I was that close to being Fozzie Bear. Oh, man, that would have been really, really cool, man. Yeah, that yeah. definitely would have been uh, in the annals of history. <laughs> yeah, that, that's one, one of my favorite favorite cartoons from that era, and it's it's actually really hard to find now uncut because of all the um, all the film and, and movie stuff that he had, you know, intertwined in there, you know, especially when uh, Gonzo would open up the closet, it would be, you know, a, a robot coming after a, you know, yes. a robot or something, but there is, I, I did find that there's, um, I believe it's from somewhere in England. You could buy, you have to go through eBay and you could buy the DVD set and wow. it, it's completely uncut. It has all the, you know, original scenes on it. So I, I've been looking for that and I, I caught a few of them on YouTube and man, did it just, it bring back some memories and oh, it, yeah. and you know, people out there might be laughing saying, oh, Muppet Babies, but I'll tell you, you watch it and there is, uh. There is some definitely some adult oriented in, innuendo in in the Muppet Babies oh, that, that you well, catch now. Well, <laughs> I, I want to see if you guys remember this hit. Okay, now our friend uh, William Osborne, that's uh, the one I was talking about. He uh, he's a great uh, inventor and had a lot of stuff to do. Um, but here's the funny thing about: Do you guys remember Morgan Friedman? Well, I yes. know Joe, you're not going to remember this, but I know William. Uh, I'm sure. I mean, Michael, I'm sure you do. It's uh, when he was. Uh, the Dracula in the Electric Company. Yes, <laughs> I am the Count, or I forgot what it was. Count. Um, oh my God, what did he go under? Count, but he he played that. Actually, to be honest with you, Morgan Friedman was a scary vampire in that show. Hmm. I don't recall him doing the vampire as much as being on it. I watched him on it. Oh yeah, was... he did. He was uh, one time he played. And he says. I am Count something, the vegetable vampire. You know what I mean? Wow. Oh, yeah. Morgan Freeman played an awesome role in the electric company. Yeah, I'm trying to look it up now. Vincent the the vegetable vampire. Yeah, Vincent the (laughs) vegetable. Oh, my goodness. And and it is awesome. That's an awesome. In fact, I think, honestly, one of the reasons I like Morgan Freeman so much today as an actor is because he played that, and I gotta be honest with you. I have to he check looked, that out now. That he looks... looks like a real mean vampire. Like you would be afraid, you know. Yeah, he got. Yeah. I'm looking at it now. He got the the fangs, and he's looks. He's biting into a a cucumber. Oh my gosh, that is awesome. Cool. I I actually got the entire Electric Company on DVD, uh, and there was. L- let me ask you this question now, my, Michael. You got to remember. Um, 
the hilarious house of Frightenstein, not Frankenstein, Frightenstein, and they used to use Vincent Price at the end as a narrator. It's in the back of my head somewhere. Okay, it played only in my area for one season, which was 1973. And it was where it starts, where you had the librarian, you had uh, the the guy who played Dracula, and he had uh, Frankenstein in a slab. And uh, he would say, Brucey, Brucey, you you know, he, the Bruce, wow. he it was the same Canadian actor that played all the parts. Wow. From, from the mummy, he played the, the librarian, which looked like a very old um, uh, Mark, Mark Twain. And he would go into and say, no, I'm going to read a story. And then he had to blow dust off the books. That show. I think was not aired much in this country, even though, believe it or not, it went for like 20 seasons in Canada. Right. I think it was because of copyright infringements because they tried to call it instead of the hilarious house, which as a kid, I understood to be Frankenstein. It was Frightenstein. And they only came out a few years ago with about eight episodes on DVD and they sold out like the same day it came out. That show, a lot of people never remembered it. And it was, in my opinion, one of the, my favorite shows as a kid. I used to love that. And then they had, a, I don't know, he's, he's going to ring a bell when I mention this one. The same guy played a wolfman, and he called himself, I am the wolfman. And he used to play psychedelic <laughs> music. You don't remember him at all? No. You mean, you mean Wolfman Jack? No, 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 no. On the show, The Hilarious House of Frightenstein. Oh, I don't they remember. They show different episodes. And uh, let me see if I can look up uh, who played that. Um, it was a Canadian actor. And the funny thing about this actor is he played every single part. Uh, let me see. Joe, are you there that you can look it up? Yeah, I'm trying to look it up now. I'm looking at it. It ran from, it looks like 19, uh, 19. It started in 1971, ran 130 episodes. It was a uh, Canadian uh, children's show. Wow. Was it Billy Van? Is that who yes, you're... yes. Billy Van played every single character. Wow. But I got to tell you something. Oh, wow. Vincent Price was on it, too. No, yeah. No, Vincent Price was not really on the show. He was the narrator. Oh, like okay. He would say, come to the you know, hilarious house of Frighten, you know. It oh, was... this is this is funny. I'm, I'm looking. You were talking about the Wolfman. He's, it says, a werewolf disc jockey at radio station Eek, who spun rock and roll records while doing a Wolfman Jack impression. Yeah. That's really cool. <laughs> Let me tell you, that show was hilarious. You know, it's goofy because I did buy the eight episodes, whatever, and I tried to get the entire run, but I think it's very hard to get in this country. Very oh, hard to get. Man, but, I got to check this out, man. This no, is, but, gotta, but I'm telling take you, a it's, note. It, it's a goofy show. There's a part where a gorilla comes and gets hit with a ping pong ball in his head and he falls down. But the show is hilarious. I mean, like, I love it. I can go back and it reminds, like I said, a lot of people didn't know about the show. But I know in the East Coast, in New York City, it ran in 1973 or Hmm. 74 for one season and it never ran again. But I used to love, and the, the thing that really drew me to the show was the Vincent Price voice. Interesting. That's cool. Yeah, you could find it on. Uh, it's on D- on DVD. Yeah, it but came it's out only, in two thousand five. know, there was a lot of regional things like that. That's on East Coast or West Coast. Like when I was little, um, there was a show in L.A. that was ho- it was a kid show hosted by a little Frank. It was called Shrimpenstein. 
<laughs> yeah, and it was it, actually it was it's kind of interesting because it was back in the sixties. I think about sixty seven, sixty six. I actually own a Shrimpenstein um, that I bought down at Hollywood Magic, um, and um, Shrimpenstein was uh, created actually by Wa Chang, who created a lot of the phasers and the communicators in Star Trek. Anyway, he's like a ventriloquist dummy, but he was made because jelly beans fell, fell into a uh, the monster machine and it created Shrimpenstein. And uh, it's a cool little show. And, and I think we'll have a few episodes or something. But yeah, we had that out here. That was local on KCAL 9. You, I don't think it went across the country. So there's a lot of these pocket shows that like you're talking about and I'm talking about that many of us never have seen. That is correct. But you know, another thing that I'm going to tell you about the West Coast and East Coast that still resonates to this day for some reason, anytime, and I remember the original owner of uh, Fun Factory when I joined forces with him, Lou Weiss, he said to me, Eddie, we waited for there to be storms in the West Coast. Because when there were storms or even snowstorms like in Washington State, he said, we got bombarded by mail order, uh, you know, people oh, wow. ordering, ordering stuff. And I realized that half of the stuff that I sell for some crazy reason, the people that order this stuff are usually from California. I don't know why. Wow. It, 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 I mean, that's an interesting part of the mail order thing. You would think, wow, everybody in the East Coast would buy this stuff. But most of my buyers are from the West Coast. That would, is so interesting. Which led me to believe one time that I wonder somebody in the West Coast has the robot plans that... uh Someday I can come across them, you know. <laughs> yeah. I, I was just I was just looking on on eBay, and there is a Shrimpenstein fan club card and letter on there for sale. Huh? huh. Yeah, what that is. is it, for, what is it selling for, Joe? Uh, thirty nine ninety nine. It doesn't I say. It, my little, I imagine my little Shrimpenstein is worth something. Then there's probably a fan base out there. Yeah, there. There's no. I don't see a year or anything on it, but it comes with a letter, has a sticker on it, and then a uh, a fan club card, which is the front of it has, you know, where it says uh, where you could, you know, uh, put your name and on that says you're an official member. And then the back of it has a, uh, it says Strippenstein's secret code for official members only. And it has, you know, A equals U, B equals Z, and so on. Wow. Really cool. Wow. And I guess the guy messed up here because on the bottom of it says danger. Do not show anyone the Shrippenstein secret code who is not a member. And he's showing it to people. So, you know, he's I, he's got to give up his card. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's right. But that is that is really cool. I, I've never heard of uh, Shrippenstein. And you could actually there's a, a you Shrippenstein.com. There's a, a one page. Um, there, there's actually a kid, too, Joe. There's a kid on Worth Point. That it's uh, it sells the puppet, a record, and I really can't tell what it is, but as a letter, I guess, I guess you would join the club and they would send you that. Oh, well, really? oh. Uh, I don't remember that character of all me, and I was a big monster, but I've never seen that. That, that tells you how the West Coast and East Coast were different back in the early 70s, right? That's right. That is that's really cool, man. I I'm gonna have to. I got some digging to do tonight on uh, on a I, few different titles. <laughs> I have. I think there's some YouTube of Shrimpenstein. So yeah, there yeah there is. I I typed it in, and there's uh there's some clips you can find on YouTube I, and uh, Vimeo. Cool. Gonna, now I was gonna say one thing to you guys. There is one particular guy that I, that he's contacted me throughout the years in California, and he tells me that California man he says, hey, I used to look at all the good stuff in the East Coast, man. 
And when I was little, I would always send away for that stuff. Really nice guy. Well, you know, I did. I did too. I and I that's where I, I bought a lot of those mail stuff. And not it wasn't in that era because I'm a little bit younger, but but it was pre era, I think, uh, Eddie, as far as owning the property stuff. But but I I did. I loved all that stuff. And you know what I loved too was the karate the karate one too. Um, you know, they had the karate lessons, and you would have the pamphlet, and then you would have uh, you put on your wall the uh, poster, and it would have all the pressure points. You practice with that poster, and it looked like a burglar, like the old time burglar. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember those. Yeah, I actually I have an original one of those. Uh, if you look at one of my early videos, oh I wow. reproduced. I reproduced it, but you have to look. I go to my YouTube channel and look at the really older videos where I look really young on it. And well, that must I, be really, really old. I mean, what? no, you, you'll see. I, I reproduced <laughs> it. I used to reproduce them in Staples at the time, but um, I actually have. You know, you sent one to me years ago, Eddie, when we we first started talking on on Universal Monster Army. Yeah, you sent me um, you sent me a bunch of posters. That was one of them with the uh, pressure points. Get out of here! Yeah, really? it, it's a that is a really cool poster, man. It is. Yeah, it looked like a burglar, and it's funny because it, it said that uh, when it said karate practice dummy, or pre I remember going when I first got married to the different uh, medical supply stores trying to see if there was one available, and yeah. they're like, "What?" <laughs> and I said, "No, it's not a dummy. It's actually like a like a a poster, you know." Yeah, uh, you know, one of the biggest things when you're talking about that—that's a very old ad, by the way. It's very popular too, and it goes back to like the mid '60s. Yeah, that's what I it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely the pressure point dummy with karate. But there's an article uh with, which was written, I think it's in a, in some type of writer's magazine. I, I forgot the name of I know I have the magazine and it was 10, 15 years ago, but it's called The World's Deadliest Ads. And the 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 guy who wrote the article did a whole history behind, you know, everything from Count Dante, the deadliest man alive to all those famous karate ads. But the thing with those karate uh, ads was that they always promised the buyer the ultimate thing. Like your hands will become deadly. You know, yeah. Or or the best one of all is the honor house, which I always wanted to have as a kid. And then finally got one later on in life, which was the pocket gym. Which was oh, a yeah. Gym. And it says this will slap on inches on your upper. And I'm like slap inches from what? Pulling a rubber band, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but, um, hey guys, I, I hate to cut you off there, but we we got a few uh, few minutes left here, so we're gonna have to to wrap thing up, wrap everything up. This has been a uh, a great conversation. But uh, before we go, uh, Michael, can you uh, you want to tell everyone where they could find you or how they could get a hold of you? Yeah, great. Um, yeah, um, best way to do it probably is to go to one of my websites. I'll give you my magic website, but every site has you know contact info, but. The magic side is www. Let me just, no, I'll do the hypnosis one because it's easier. www.mesmer, M E Z M E R, dot Weebly, W E E B L Y, dot com. So www.mesmer.weebly.com. Okay, awesome. Awesome. And uh, for anybody that wants to get a hold of uh, Michael Mesmer, head over to that website. And if you need to get a hold of me and Eddie for anything, head over to houseoftheunusual.com where uh, we have the completely revamped website. There's a, uh, a free email list and a free form that everybody can sign up and join and talk to some like-minded people. And um, there's even a spot on there where you could let us know uh, what you want to hear on this uh, podcast or if you would like to be a guest. And also head over to YouTube search in house of the unusual 
head over to our page there where there's a, a ton of videos. Eddie's always putting up something new and, and interesting. Uh, subscribe to the channel, hit that like button, and uh, and help support us. And you know, listen to us every every week. And you know, thank you guys for for joining us on the podcast, Michael. Once again, thank you for for joining us, and that, you know, hope you're back on very soon. Awesome, thanks so much. And go out and buy a Scary Monsters, everyone. It's a cool magazine this month. Absolutely, Scary Monsters one twenty one on your rack. And uh, Michael, Eddie been a great conversation and I will see you guys later. Later. Bye-bye.